it looks like it's 8.30. So uh, I see some folks are still coming on, which is great. And uh, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you grace us with your love and your presence as you lead us in your church and as we live out our baptisms and as we continue on in this world as your disciples and as your holy people we ask that you will lift us up and that you will bless us and that you will encourage us in these days that in the midst of so many things that um, leave us concerned or worried or perplexed that you may Give us the peace that we need, that we may find the joys of your salvation, and that your hope will strengthen us all. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, tonight, uh, let me pull this up real quick. I, so you have the chat function, which you can pull up on the side there. Uh, it's down below, and then... Let's see, I'm going to paste in or post in here the handout in case you would like to take a look at it. I got to talking and forgot to do it. Let's see here. All right, let's see if it's on there. There we go. Okay, so I, I just put up the Zoom uh, handout for tonight so you can access it that way. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the theme of attentiveness. And there have been a lot of studies done with um, young folks and, uh, you know, looking at millennials, but then also looking at Generation Z. And there, in fact, there was just a study that came out uh, just very recently by Barna, where they they basically researched the Gen Z or the iGens uh, to discuss um, or to find out how they feel about their culture and technology. And the study, the, the summary of the study was that the younger generation feels like the, the cell phone and the technology that they have actually hinders um, their social interaction with with others and um it would be a, a good study to spend some time on because it gets to uh, a theme that we see in the bible um it's also a theme that uh, saint benedict focused on uh in in his rule of saint benedict and its attentiveness and the culture today as as the culture spends more time with technology and more time with their phones and more time with, with information that is going through social media and whatnot, there, there's this sense of curving in. Um, there's also uh, so much information that creates worry. Uh, one of the things that the Gen Z seem to be dealing with a lot in studies is they have so much information 
which causes so much concern, but they don't actually have the ability to fix what they see. The, you know, so much of the information is out there and they, they just see it and, and then they process it and they internalize it. And when we try to fix things or we try to figure things out, that's when we often go inward and we, we search ourselves. Um, this inward disposition is sometimes maybe kind of a defense mechanism or a way of trying to help solve the world's problems. And you see this also with the younger generations, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they have perhaps kind of a, a greater need to want to make the world a better place. So you, you take the amount of information that they receive, the inability to fix it, the worry that can often come along with it, and then, hey, I need to try to do something. What can I do? And then greater trouble can come in if they feel like they can't fix it. So one of the things that that is an, this important theme of attentiveness helps people to redirect that energy, uh, redirect what is going on within themselves. Um, if these things can't be fixed, it often creates despair. And I talked about this last week that, you know, St. Paul has this word that he uses for um, troubles, for um, struggles, tribulations, that kind of thing. It, it is like the walls are coming in. The word that he uses means a narrowing. And as I said last week, so often when, when we suffer, the walls come in and all we can see is the thing that's killing us. And so that also destroys attentiveness. A, we feel like no one's being attentive to us. That's one thing. But then B, we become so concerned about the thing that's troubling us that we have a hard time being attentive to others. There's a flip side to this, and this gets to uh, the gospel that we're going to look at tonight. And that is sometimes life can be so good. And this is the other side. Life can be so good and we can have all of our needs met that life is just a party. It's just one big, you know, me session. And that's one of the things that we see in our gospel for tonight. So you can open up a Bible if you have it and open up to Luke chapter eight. We are going to look at uh, the rich man and Lazarus. I'm sorry, Luke 16. I said Luke eight, but it's Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. And When you look at this, it comes right after Jesus talking to the Pharisees. So we're at Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And the sense of narrative is really strong for the... Uh, for the young, for the millennials and, and Gen Z or iGen. And 
I have some, I have a quote on the handout from James K.A. Smith. And I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with him, but he's a very thoughtful guy. And, and he is, he's basically a philosopher. Um, and he's a Christian, comes out, I think, the Reformed uh, background. And James K.A. Smith talks about postmodernism and modernism and what he what he he talks about how uh with modernism there was a grand narrative or a grand story that is meant to paint a picture for a lot of people so the idea with modernism is to group as many people under one story as possible and postmodernism rejects this postmodernism says that might be your truth but that's not my truth and Postmodernism operates with a lot of relativity. And one of the key components for a postmodern worldview is, and I need to get a graphic. I'll see if I can put together a graphic for you next week and show it. But, you know, you could take like a circle and the circle would be the individual. And then you could have several offshoots that come out like this. And all of those offshoots would be things that are experiences that define the person. Uh, it could be identity markers that the person would like to identify with. And then all these, these little things end up defining the person, the ego, the I. And so postmodernism says, this is me, and these are the things that define me. But so this is my truth, but it's only my truth. It's not your truth. And so you have different set of circumstances. You have a different background. You have different experiences. And so the postmodern would say, these are the things that define you, and they are your truth. And so when you think about these things, then, the modern world tends to focus more on the thinking aspect. Postmodernism tends to focus more on the feeling aspect. Truth is relative. And so what happens is people want to tell their story. And that story is uniquely their story. Or you might have smaller groups and they would say, this is our story. So modernism de-emphasizes smaller groups, postmodernism highlights smaller groups. And sometimes we call that tribalism. And so you have a lot of this going on. So when you think about protreptics or you think about the art of witness, it's a great way of bringing in stories to talk to people and to share a story with them, share a narrative with them. And I have done this a lot with, with young people outside the church. We talk about the story. And protreptics, and I've said this before, but it's always worth repeating, protreptics was done by Plato. It was done by Socrates. And so for one example, and I think I mentioned this briefly last week, Socrates in his dialogue with Protagoras, what he did was he learned the different 
philosophies of the sophists' positions. And so he knows the culture around him very well. And what he did then was he became like a ventriloquist to echo the philosophies and the stories that Protagoras would have been familiar with, but then he spins it back around. And part of the beauty of it is, so then Clement of Alexandria comes along and he's a Christian and he's in Alexandria, Egypt. And in Alexandria, Egypt, so Clement's years were roughly 150 to 212 AD. So he lived in Alexandria at a time where it was like a marketplace of ideas. There were all kinds of philosophies. There were mystery cults. There was all these Greek practices and Greek beliefs. There was a strong Jewish element in Alexandria. And then there was the, the church Catholic. And in those days, in Clement's day, the church wasn't um, as established in a modern sense the way we know it. Uh, there were churches with Eucharist and altar and bishops and pastors. But one of the things that was very strong in Alexandria, Egypt at that time was philosophical schools. Every philosopher had his or her school. And the school was known based on the teachers, the catechists' reputation, the philosophers' reputation. And we some, we've lost sight of this. Like, there's an early Christian, I think even earlier than Clement, by the name of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr was like a Christian missionary. And he was, I believe, martyred for the faith. But he still wore his philosopher's mantle at, when he would walk around town. And so he was always about the streets and talking to the people. And then he had his school, I believe. Clement definitely had a school. And Clement of Alexandria, his school had a good reputation. And so Clement would use protreptics. He, in those days, Christianity was just fighting for a seat at the at the philosophical table or the table of ideas. It wasn't like we have known it in America where Christianity has held a prominent place and a prominent voice in the, in the country's history. He was just hoping to be heard. And so he knew the other philosophies very well. He would listen, a lot of listening. And I think that's one of the things that's tough uh, for Christians today is to listen. I think it's it's a kind of almost a, this innate thing for us that we have the answers, we, we know the truth and we care so much and we wanna share it. And yet it's so important to listen. And when you listen, you learn about what the people think, what they believe in, but then also equally as important, you learn why. Why do they believe these things? What led them to these things? And they will tell you their story. And this is uh, important to them. The, the younger the people, the more important it is to be able to tell their story. 
And Clement, for example, then with Procreptics, he would listen for grains of truth. And sometimes he would hear it in another philosophy or a different position. And then when he had opportunity, he would say, you know, that's important to you, isn't it? You know, that aspect of love or uh, the need for mercy or to help the poor uh, or to be drawn into mystery and deeper truth, that's important to you. And, you know, they would say, yes, that's important to me. And then Clement would take it and draw them back to Moses uh, or the scriptures. And then he would share with them this thing that is so important to you uh, is important to us. And it's part of our story. And look at how old this story is. You know, this story is really, it goes back to the foundation. And so he would, what he would do is he would try to reconnect seed grains of truth that would be found in the scriptures that another person would be discussing or finding important. And he would use that to draw them back. And, you know, when you think about the world today, and this gets kind of to the heart of, of our text that we're going to look at tonight, what you see in so many of these accounts of Jesus or parables are so valid today, um, so meaningful and, and important. And quite frankly, for myself, having been an atheist until I was 22, I didn't know anything about the scriptures, but I had my own presuppositions. And, and those presuppositions were uh, things that I had seen in other Christians, maybe like if I saw somebody that was acting hypocritically, I used it against them and I painted with broad strokes or I, I did not know the gospel. I did not know mercy. And when I thought about Christians, the last thing I thought of was that they were people of mercy. And so for me, and, and I had no idea what a liturgy was. And so for me, when I first started hearing the gospel, it started to shake things up within me. And I, I heard the gospel but then what was what do you think the next problem was for me after i'd heard the gospel jesus loves you and he died for you and and he paints your life with the color of mercy then what's the next thing i started worrying about well that probably wasn't for me because my sins are too great and could god really really love me for for who I was and, and the struggles that I had gone through. And so um, this whole aspect of working with people and loving people who are outside the church, it really does take time. Um, it takes patience. Um, it's, uh, it takes a lot of mercy and just a lot of willingness to listen. So let's take a look at, at this gospel for tonight, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And think about, try to think about, as we look at this, try to think about how would someone 
outside of the church hear this and how might it address their needs, um, their concerns, their desires. So Luke chapter 16, and and really I, I could just tell you the story. You have two people and this is a parable. So you have the rich man and you have Lazarus and the rich man, he, he fared sumptuously every day. He had a lot of money and he was especially rich. Um, the, the very fact that he was clothed in purple and fine linen uh, is the mark that he wasn't just doing well, but he was, he was very wealthy because only the rich could really afford purple garments because it was so costly to make those and to get the purple, to get the purple dye. And so every day, as he feasted and as he lived his life, people would bring to his gate a poor man named Lazarus. And this is the only parable that I'm aware of in the Gospels that actually has a name. Um, when you look at the parables, as, as, as I can recollect, I re- recollect, I don't recall a name being used in, in parables except for this one. And Lazarus is the name, and it means divine help. And it comes from Eliezer, Eliezer. And so they would place Lazarus at the rich man's gate every day, and the rich man would come and go and pass pass the man by. And then, as we are told in the story, both of them die. And what strikes me about this particular gospel and this parable are the contrasts that that are embedded in the text itself. Because when you think about Lazarus, Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, and it says that Lazarus is carried by the angels. And he's carried into the arms of Abraham. Uh, now, this this man, when he was living and he was at the gate, only the dogs would come and lick his sores. And I've seen this interpreted uh, two different ways. One is that not even the dogs were merciful because they would lick his sores and he wasn't uh, strong enough to, to fend them off. But I think, and this is my inclination, is that it was only the dogs that were merciful to the to the poor Lazarus that they would come and, and try to lick his sores in, in an effort to try to heal him. Um, you could take it either way, I think. But so Lazarus is carried by the angels into the arms of Abraham, but it says something completely different for the rich man. He dies. He's buried. End of story. And then comes this dialogue. You have Abraham with Lazarus up in paradise. Down in Hades is the rich man. The rich man looks up. He's burning with torment. 
and he looks up and he sees Lazarus and he sees sees Abraham and he speaks to Abraham and he says, hey, could you please send Lazarus down and dip his finger in some water and touch the tip of my tongue? For I am just filled with torment down here in Hades. And Abraham responds and he says, hey, you had your good things in life and Lazarus had his his unfortunate life but now it's it's different now Lazarus is comforted now you're the one in torment now you're the one suffering and when you think about this account it's it's a it's a beautiful account now how how would how could you so this is kind of a question to think about how could you use this with people outside of the church people that have never heard it before maybe they don't know anything about christianity but they want justice that's one of the things we see with the young they have a high a high regard for justice they also have uh they're very sensitive to shame so you have that too what would they see in this text well they would probably see the rich man and they would say well that no good guy you know, he gets what he deserves. That might be one thing. But then the other thing is maybe they identify a little bit or maybe you can get them to identify a little bit with Lazarus. What do you lack? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like the people or the things in this life have failed you and left you at the gate with no one to help? And then you're sort of getting them to think a little differently about it. Because I think initially they might say, yeah, that no good rich man, he gets what he deserves, right? Justice, end of story. Because the, you know, the poor Lazarus was shamed. But then flip it, and maybe they identify with Lazarus. And now you get an opportunity to hear some things that maybe are painful for them. Maybe they will talk about what's hurt, what hurts them. And this has happened several times with me where I'm just telling the story and I'm kind of going along like this with you. And then the very next thing I know is the person's pouring his or her out, heart out to me. And it all of a sudden is almost like confession and absolution. Uh, it's an opportunity for the gospel. So it's like, it's a bridge that leads to Jesus right off. And this parable, Jesus is telling the parable, but he's not, he's not in it from what we can see, at least not outright. So the rich man, he's alone. You know, if you look at this account, the rich man in his life probably had friends because he was wealthy. And perhaps a lot of people just used him because he was wealthy. Who knows? But now he's in torment and there is no indication that there is anybody else around him. He truly suffers in solitude. But then Lazarus, who lived in solitude, a forced solitude, a forced loneliness, 
he's never alone in his death and in his in his in his existence in paradise i think when i first learned this account and i don't know you can kind of like give me a hands up or something if you've ever thought about this but why is he in the arms of abraham did you ever wonder that like why not jesus because we would think right up in the arms of jesus right i mean that's what luther says luther says that when a person dies their soul goes and rests in the arms of Jesus to await the resurrection. So I would always think that maybe it should be Jesus, but it's Abraham. Why? Well, that's a good question. And I'm not sure completely of the answer, but what is at least evident to me is he's in holy community. Abraham's patriarch all the way back to the beginning. And Lazarus is in holy community all the saints. Sounds like the liturgy, right? With all the company of heaven, angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name. So Lazarus rests not in solitude, not in loneliness like he had in life, but in community. The rich man has it completely opposite. And then there's something else. So Lazarus is named, and it means divine help, but the rich man is nameless, which is to suggest that he's forgotten. And Lazarus is named, which is to say that his memory will endure forever. And so then the, the account continues because then, oh, and let me just say this too, one more thing. So even in death, the rich man's pride has not left him. But the thing that, that ate him alive in life is the thing that still carries with him in Hades. Because in his pridefulness, he looks up and he sees Lazarus now finally at peace. But what does he want? He still wants to be served, and he, and he wants Lazarus to still be the servant. And he wants to bring Lazarus out of his peace that he now gets to enjoy. So Abraham mentions that there's been a chasm. A chasm is fixed. You can't get from here to there. And as this story goes on, the rich man sees everything that he's missing, but we don't get any indication, at least, that Lazarus has any idea that this conversation is, is going on. It's, it's mysterious, but, you know, it's, it's almost as if we get the picture that Lazarus is in bliss. He is in complete joy. And so then the rich man then says, well, then if not, please send Lazarus to my family. I have five, I have five siblings and I just don't want them to end up like me. And there's a, there's something to this, I think, you know, the notion of five, 
Five is a temple number because you have five pillars along the doors going into the Holy of Holies, into the temple. You have uh, the five books of Moses, the Torah. And then what is so, so fascinating to me is that he says, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And based on what he's saying is they've got the scriptures. And he's saying that if, if they're going to find salvation, I, the Lord has given them everything that they need in the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures and then they will, they will find their way out. And I have listed many, many passages in the handout. This would be, let's see here. This would be on page four, a bunch of red at the top of page four. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. And then what I included are all kinds of texts that the poor are to be cared for. So the Old Testament is full of opportunity for how one confesses, prays, receives, and loves. And it's all there. And so basically what he's saying is, rich man, you missed it. You missed all of it. And I've often wondered, why, why was it his tongue that was aflame? Perhaps it was that which was aflame was the very thing that he didn't use. He didn't confess the Lord's name. He didn't pray. He didn't love. He, he wasn't enwrapped in the love of God which taught him how to use his tongue in the right way. And so there's the end for the rich man. And so he's got these five brothers. He wants Lazarus to go and tell him. And he wants the miraculous. And so see, even in Hades, Abraham is up there telling him, hey, they've got the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. That's all they need. And he says, no, but... Father Abraham, if someone would be raised from the dead, someone would come from the dead, they would then believe. So he wants the miraculous. And let me just add this point too about myself. When I was going through a, a period in, in my atheism, and, and this was right before Stacy and I got together and started dating. So I was getting really close and I had had, I'd had several friends. I had five friends commit suicide in a two year period. And I just kept going back to the, back to the funeral home and looking at these young people that looked like they were sleeping and, you know, I knew them well and they were dead. And I was really struggling just with what does all of this mean? You know, it was kind of this lonely despair and it was it was similar it was different than this story but it was the same thing you know the 
the pain of the world was closing in on me. And all I could see was this, this pain, the thing that was slowly killing me and eating away at me. And I remember just a couple of times kind of like throwing up these prayers saying, God, if you exist, show yourself to me and I'll believe. It, I mean, it was just textbook. Like I, I had never heard this story, but any of it, but it was just almost inherent in me that I wanted to see something miraculous so that I could have faith. And, and yet what happens? But then a short time later, beautiful Stacy comes along and she's carrying, you know, the Bible and Luther's catechism and saying, Hey, let's go out. <laughs> and so anyway, the rest is history, but, um, what happened? But the Lord answered my prayers by leading me to scripture, leading me to church, leading me to the altar, leading me to a pastor uh, to teach me. Um, and so back to the rich man and Lazarus then. So then he says, they have Moses and the prophets, they let them hear them. No, if someone would come to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Abraham says it. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And I think that's pregnant with the resurrection of Christ. And so, you know, think about what this does for the centrality of the scriptures and the gospels and narrative sharing sharing these these accounts of Christ sharing the teachings of the savior leading them to the oasis that proclaims life and the holy spirit works through this proclamation through the scriptures and so what do we see but per, the notion of persuasion? The scriptures persuade. And there's some, some passages here on page four of the handout, if you want to just take a, quick, take a quick look. About the middle of the page, verse 31. Um, so it says, let's see here, it says in the Greek, well, in the English, it says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And then in the Greek, it literally says, um, neither will they be persuaded if, if someone rises from the dead. And this comes up a few times. One of the things that's so interesting about uh, the Greek and persuasion is you take the word faith. The word faith in Greek is pistis. And this word actually also means proof. And so, you know, if you think about the beginning of John's gospel, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here for a second, but if you look at John's gospel, you have this wonderful chapter that talks about the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. And then the very next thing, is John the Baptist comes on the scene 
John, John the Evangelist tells a story about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And he lets, he lets John the Baptist tell the story, which is interesting. Whereas the other gospels, the evangelists tell the story themselves. But John lets John the Baptist tell the story. And then what do you have after that? But then you have John the Baptist pointing for the disciples and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he does it a couple of times. Hey, look, behold, there he is. And so what's happening is John the Baptist is being used as a narrative device, right, to point to the Savior. And so this is what we do. We take the scriptures and we point to Christ and we weave in the things that God did and the things that God continues to do, bringing life and bringing hope to people. And there's some passages that Paul uses, like uh, Romans 2 verses 7 and 8. It says, and I have it written here, uh, typed out in, in red, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And in the Greek there, when, it's, when it says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, the Greek says those who are not persuaded by the truth. And so this is, this is part of the, part of the technicality of protreptics is we listen and then we share the story and we address the heart. And that's a key component because so often we try to address the mind and we just try to think our way into it. We try to get people to think their way into it. But think about how, how often people think through life versus how often they feel their way through life. And so people engage their heart when they're moving about and when they make decisions. And even the early church, the early church fathers, they often talk about the soul and they say that the soul is, is never in what they called static position, but the soul is always in movement. And what the soul does is it moves to one thing or the other. It either moves to the things of the flesh and the world or with Christ, scripture, Eucharist, it then leads them to holy things. And so for us as Christians, as we do practice the art of witness as we live out our lives in mission and in love. If we can listen to the heart, we can hear what they're feeling, what they're saying, and then lovingly in a relationship, a friendship, share with them the things that the Lord has given and in the gift of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit works through, 
then it can the Holy Spirit does his work through the word and the sacraments to draw to draw them to comfort and and it is truly that right like when we see somebody hurting we don't want them to hurt anymore it's you know mission work evangelism outreach the art of witness it's not to put another notch on our belt and say saved another one saved another one saved another one but i mean it's truly a concern for those who are struggling those who are suffering and if you're earnest and you just rest in the love of christ the love of christ will flow out of you and and it will be evident and um and that's very meaningful so at the at the end of this if you want to look at the last where there's so much scripture like the galatians 5 7 passage i've got there too that is awesome um you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth again who hindered you from being persuaded by the truth um and then there's also something i don't think i put this down but it's in in first peter four but anyway go to the last page because i see i'm out of time here so what is notable about the text There's only one instance of a name in the parables, Lazarus. The rich man can see heaven. Lazarus doesn't seem to be able to see what's going on around him down there. The rich man is is alone. Lazarus is in the arms of Abraham, holy community, heavenly community. The rich man is nameless. Lazarus is named. And then I've listed some scripture, which you can take a look at on your own, that reinforces this whole connection of solitude versus holy community, namelessness or being forgotten versus being named and being remembered. And one of the most powerful things I think about this is that people that feel alone, people that feel left out, People who have no help or aid find in this gospel the love of Jesus and the fact that when you enter the church and you come to the baptismal font, you are named as Jesus clothes you and puts the sign upon your forehead and upon your heart, you are named. And when you're named, you're never alone. And so as you continue from the font to the altar, out to life, and then finally to the grave, you're never alone. The angels will carry you to heaven. The Lord abides with you always. Jesus remains with you. And so do the saints and all the company of heaven. One thing Lorraine's uh, commentary has is that Christ was on earth talking to these people. And in his absence, Abraham was the one holding Lazarus. And the reason for Lazarus being named is this wasn't a story. This was narrative of an event that happened. Yes. You know what? That is exactly exactly the take that I have had, is that because he's named it is an actual event that happened. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Thank you, Rich. 
So let us close with the Lord's Prayer as we finish tonight. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And thank you very much. And just as a reminder, next Thursday is Thanksgiving, so we will not have a Zoom. So we'll pick up in two weeks. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me. I, it's a joy. More Holy Community. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful, wonderful night and a blessed Thanksgiving.